you can open up your app, and the Bible should turn right to John 3, or if you have a Bible uh, separate from that, turn to John chapter 3, if you would. I've said this a, a couple times, and uh, it bears repeating, really. Uh, when we look at, like when Kyle and Katya are up here, and, the, and they have their kids with them, I've said this to a lot of families. A lot of families have been like, well, should I go put my kids over here? Should we do this? Or what should we do? And I said, no, if, if we're committed to being a family church, I would rather have the kids on stage grabbing for a microphone, right, and be able to be a part of the family and love families rather than keep them separate. And so for me, when I see that, man, I celebrate the young families that God is reaching. I, I celebrate the things that God is doing through, through us as a church. Uh, I know today is one of those days where everybody is out sick and everybody's fighting stuff. So forgive us, even as a staff, as we're wrestling with some things. But now we get to lean into a season that if you grew up in church, you've probably heard the term Advent, right? And that, that's those four weeks prior to Christmas or Christmas Eve. And Advent really is the advent of Christ or the coming of Christ as Christ entered into human history, Christmas. As we look at that, we remind ourselves, and, and, and this is what I think is probably most important for us, we remind ourselves that Christmas is really about Christ entering into human history, Christ becoming flesh. It's not about gifts and family and all the other things that we can get caught up in. Now, there's nothing wrong with giving gifts to those whom you love. There's absolutely nothing wrong with family. We love family. But the reason we gather the thing that we are to be about is Jesus entering into human history, right? As God became flesh, he did so to redeem and reunite us to God, a fallen humanity, fallen humanity being reconciled to a holy God. And so Advent for us, we're going to look through some Advent readings. They'll be out of First and Second Peter this year, as Kyle and Katya just did the first one out of First Peter. We're going to work our way through some of those. And if you've never been a part of a church, you've never heard the term Advent before, really there's some themes. And, and today's is just about hope, that Christ entered into human history that we might have hope. So for those of you note takers, and this is in the app if you have that, the hope of Christmas or the hope of Christ entering into human history. Jesus was born in the flesh so that we might see God. Through being made alive in him, meaning spiritually born, we have an inheritance reserved in heaven, a living hope guaranteed to us by Christ. Right, That our hope comes from Jesus making us spiritually alive. And that's what the passage is going to talk about today. But our hope is found in Christ. That Jesus entered into our story, our lives, our world, our humanity, that he entered in in flesh, that we might be able to have hope. Now, why hope? Now, let me just, a quick tidbit from my background, for a little piece of my life story. Uh, most of you know my story, my background, uh, lots of troubled childhood, drugs, problems, etc. I could tell you this, every year around Thanksgiving, I started getting in trouble, a lot of trouble. And what we figured out later on as an adult looking backwards especially is every year I was so miserable and so hopeless during Christmas uh, because the family breakdown and the things that I didn't get to do that I actually got in trouble as a way of being away from everything. and just really kind of torpedoed my own life every year around the same time. And so when I come to Christmas, I, I might be coming from a different perspective than you. Maybe you are 
all about Christmas. And maybe family for you is at its peak. Maybe everything is great, but there are people in this room, and there are people in our church, and there are people in our community that this season is hard for them. Uh, over the last few months, we've lost some people. Some people have passed, young people, uh, some tragic things. Those families are having a first Christmas without that family member, that father, uh, that husband, that son, that daughter. And so imagine as we, as we rally around this big spending season, party season, family season, imagine that's not everybody. Some of us struggle. Some people, some among us hurt. And some are going through, for the first Christmas ever, deep uh, tragedy. And so as we come around this, this is not to bum anybody out. This is not to start on a low note. This is to say, listen, when that's true, and in our lives we're all going to go through those seasons, where do we turn? Where do we get to look to find hope? So let's pray, and we'll get to John chapter 3. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that we get to gather around you. Lord, talking about the reality that there are some that struggle in this season, um, that I have been in my past, I have been one of them. That's not to lower the mood in the room, but just to realize it's not the same for everyone. And that we can look to you. That Jesus, we can look up to you. And we can find hope no matter where we are. That we can find hope and joy and purpose in this life because of you. You're going to tell us how as we look to your words, Jesus, in in John chapter 3 today. I pray that you would speak, that I would fade somewhere in the background, Jesus, that you would speak to us as your church, that you would bring to those who struggle right now, that you would bring hope. For those who are all about this season, that they would also remember that this is about you, that this is about God becoming flesh, God entering into human history, and that you did so because without you, we would be lost eternally. So Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. John chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So here's the setting, right? There is a religious leader, a man named Nicodemus, who he goes up to Jesus. He goes and meets with Jesus, and he does so, if you, as you read through this story, he does so kind of under the cover of night. And really what's taking place is in this story is that there, Jesus has been starting to make a name for himself, if you will. He has been starting to do things that people have recognized. If you back up one chapter in this, Jesus was just at a party at a celebration, and he turned water into wine. He did a miracle, his first miracle, at a wedding. And so Jesus had done a miracle, had done something that people were talking about. In today's context, it's like this. Imagine things that are trending on Twitter, right? Things that are out there that people are constantly talking about, things that take place that are that many people are talking about. Now take away social media, and what you have is this buzz around a town, this word of mouth in this area that this man named Jesus, who is different and unique, has just done something that takes him way beyond different and unique, as he has literally turned water into wine. Now, same chapter, John chapter 2, right after that, Jesus goes in, he goes into the temple, and what he finds is the religious leadership 
really extorting and mistreating God's people. And what they're doing is they're really changing money and they're changing things. But what's going on, just to, to kind of shorthand that, people would come in with their offerings. And what the religious leadership would say is your offering's not good enough to be offered to God. So we'll sell you one. Or the money you brought isn't good enough for God because it's Roman money. So we'll trade you for Jewish coin. So imagine you came in today and you brought an offering of some sort. And we said, listen, your check is not good enough. We'll sell you cash, but we'll give it to you for like 50 cents on the dollar. Right? We're not doing that, by the way, just for the record. But that's what's taking place in the temple courts. Jesus literally is flipping over tables and driving people out of the temple literally at the end of a whip. Jesus has made a name. Jesus is currently, modern-day setting, trending on Twitter, right? He's there. His name is about, people are talking about Jesus, but the religious leadership opposes Jesus, right? He has just called them out for extorting and, and taking advantage of the people, of God's people. And he said things like, this is my father's house. This is God's house, not yours. And what you're doing is sinful. So it's now Jesus is at odds with the religious leadership. And so one of these religious leaders kind of sneaks away and he goes to see Jesus and he says, clearly, you're a teacher from God because there's no way that a person can do what you've done unless God is with him. So he sneaks away to speak to Jesus. You know, I, maybe that is some of us today, right? Maybe that's you sitting here. Maybe I know we've got a live stream audience that watches as well. And maybe that's where we are. Maybe that's where we need to be this Christmas is coming and just asking questions of Jesus. Saying, Jesus, who are you? Clearly, I see, I see in you someone distinct, someone unique, someone powerful, someone that is unlike anyone else. Maybe that question just needs to be for us today. Jesus, who are you? And for those of us that are here, that we, we have an understanding, we call Jesus God, we, we call him our Savior, God our Father. We call our Father like if that's where we are, great. But if you're here and you have questions about Jesus today, this story is really about someone like you. Whether you're sitting here, whether you're online, wherever you are, this story is for you. This man in pursuit of who Jesus is sneaks away to speak to Jesus in the cover of night, if you will. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I know that we went through the Jesus People movement here in Southern California in the 1970s, and the term born again became incredibly popular. People calling themselves born again Christians, things like that, that became a term that hadn't really been a term commonly used throughout the history of the church. That doesn't make it wrong, just saying that there is, as a term, born again Christian began to mean something about 50, 60 years ago, and then really gained momentum in the Jesus people movement of the late 60s, early 70s. But I want you to hear this. I want you to remove any context you might have in your mind about what this means. And I want you to just be Nicodemus for a minute. 
You're Nicodemus. You're a religious person who does not really know Jesus. And you find that this religion or this pursuit or this spirituality probably is a modern-day term that we might use, that this has left you unfulfilling, that there's something more. And you believe that maybe there's something more, that this more might be Jesus. And so you go out to Jesus and you ask this, you, ask, you just ask him, Jesus, like, who are you? Now note that Jesus doesn't really answer his question. He says something entirely different. He says, listen, no one, unless he is born again, can see the kingdom of God. Now imagine you're Nicodemus and take those words, born again, take those in for a minute. Right? It's a little weird, right? It's a little odd. There's more questions than answers, and it makes zero sense, right? Jesus, I think you're something unique. God's got to have his hand on you. I want to know more about you. And he says, well, you need to be born again. I'm imagining Nicodemus right now saying, yeah, I didn't ask you that. I'm asking about you. But here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to take a metaphor that we understand He's going to take that physical metaphor and he's going to apply it to us spiritually, right? Hence the reason people took off with this name born-again Christian. But I want you to separate all that you've ever heard about that. And I want you to hear this as if you've never heard these words before because that's how Nicodemus heard it. And the author here, John, that's how he writes it, as if this has never been said anywhere before. Jesus says, Nicodemus, truly I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? We look back at Nicodemus and we kind of giggle and laugh at Nicodemus. But if you had just heard this for the first time, maybe you're here today and maybe you've never heard this term. Or maybe you're listening or whatever and you've never heard this. And how weird does that term sound? Well, you need to be born again. Like, I'm breathing. I don't get it. And so Nicodemus asked this question. It's kind of funny, but it's, it is the most natural question ever. How is it me, who is bigger than my mom, how are we going to do that? That's Nicodemus' question. It's an honest question. Nicodemus has no paradigm for this idea, no framework for this term born again. And sometimes I think the way we hear it, I think the way it's used today, sometimes is outside of the context in which Jesus said it to Nicodemus. So sometimes it's just better to lay everything down and listen to it and imagine, okay, if I heard that for the first time, I'd be weirded out a little bit. Like I would be uncomfortable with that term. I would not understand it. I wouldn't know what to do with it, and I'd have a ton of questions. I came here asking who Jesus is, and Jesus just got weird and said, I need to be born again. That makes no sense. That's the setting for this conversation. I want to know who you are, Jesus, and now you just said something that I really, really don't understand. Verse 5. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water... And of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, if you've been around the church for any amount of time, and you've, you've probably heard this verse, and you've probably heard it applied different ways, I want to make it really simple for us. People talk about being born of the Spirit as something unique and different and separate from salvation. I want you to hear it as it's written. 
Jesus said, if you're born of the flesh or born of water, those two things are the same thing, right? And so some people say, well, no, you've got to be baptized. That's actually not what he's talking about, right? He equates born of water to born in the flesh. So he's talking about, many, many theologians have said they think this just means the amniotic fluid, that you, you're actually born in water. Midwives used to do that back in this culture. There's a lot of ways to look at this. But it has nothing to do with baptism or anything else. It just means being human. The fact that you had to be born as a human being is one thing. And then the second thing is you need to be born of the Spirit. Now, people have taken that part, kind of made it a little odd too, and thinking that this is some separate infilling of the Holy Spirit or some other thing that must be accompanied by works or signs. It's not that either. Here's what he's saying. In order to be human, you had to be born. Right? That's simple. We can take that in and we can say, okay, that's true. In order to be spiritual or to be a part of God's kingdom, you have to be born spiritually as well. Here's what he's saying. You must be born again. That whole, that whole, the whole premise right here is that something spiritually needs to take root in you. Theologians call this regeneration, right? And if you, the easiest way to explain that, if you've ever uh, been a little kid who's chased a lizard, right? You know this story. You run, you run, the lizard's running all over the place. You run and you make this spectacular ESPN-worthy dive for this lizard. And you dive and you land and you grab it and you come up. And what do you have in your hand? A tail. And the lizard's gone. And there's the tail, right? Kind of, yeah, okay, I'll go with that. So, right? Now, what happens to that lizard's tail? What happens to the lizard? Grows a new tail. Pretty ingenious mechanism, if you ask me, right? He regenerates a new tail. He gives rise to a brand new tail where there was none because you took it from him, you horrible child you, right? So, the gospel says that we were both born physically and that we were spiritually alive in God. Right? And that because of sin, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, that we are dead apart from Christ. Jesus is telling us, now you need to be made alive in the spirit. Not just your body, not just breathing, but you need to be made alive spiritually. For those of you that know that I love that verse in Ezekiel, it talks about God taking a heart of stone out of us and giving us a heart of flesh, a heart that can beat for God. Entirely, cover to cover in the Bible, same idea. That what is physical or what is human is human, but what is spiritual is spiritual. And that's what Jesus is saying. Listen, you had to be born to be human. You also have to be born to be a follower of God. Like you have to have something spiritually kickstart your dead spirit or your dead, in the metaphor, dead heart. And so Jesus is saying, listen, what is born of flesh is flesh. What is born of the spirit is spirit. So yes, you're alive physically, but now you need to be made alive spiritually. And Jesus is telling this religious leader that you can be religious and not be alive in Christ. You can be spiritual. That's kind of a common term today. Well, I'm spiritual, but not religious, or whatever they mean, right? Or I'm spiritual, but I don't go to church. Well, what Jesus is doing is he's speaking to that culture and saying, listen, you can be all these things that are human. You can be spiritual. You can be religious. You can be all these things, and you can still not be alive spiritually. You can still not be a follower of Jesus because to be a follower of Jesus, something needs to kickstart inside. And you'll notice that born of the Spirit, the Spirit is capitalized, pointing to a work that the Holy Spirit does. So for those of you that are note takers, Jesus' first teaching says this, 
Jesus' metaphor is that we need to be born spiritually just like the way we were born physically. This work is of the Holy Spirit. It's something that must take place in all of us in order for us to be alive in Christ. So if we unpack this inside the gospel, and we'll get to that in a minute, we always talk about creation, fall, redemption, restoration, right? Creation, that the humanity was made to be in relationship with God. Fall, sin entered into human history, right? Sin broke us. That separated us from God. Redemption is where Jesus, or the power of the Spirit, Jesus through the Spirit, makes us alive again in him. Restoration, that our relationship is restored back to God, both us, the the world we live in, that we long to see this world restored to God. And so what Jesus is doing is he's talking, he's taking spiritually dead people and saying you need to be born again spiritually. That the Holy Spirit needs to take root in your heart and awaken you to God. Verse 7, Jesus says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. I love that Jesus said, don't don't be too caught off guard by this. I, I, I like that because what he just said to Nicodemus, if you were hearing that for the first time, is a really weird thing to say, right? Like you have to be born again now that you're a grown man. Nicodemus is trying to take all this in. He's like, don't marvel that I said that. Don't like get caught up in that. I, I think what he's trying to do is just take some of that and say, listen, I'm trying to give you a metaphor you can understand. I'm trying to show you that at one point, in order to be alive physically, you had to be born. That you had to start taking root in this life. And yes, you did that as an infant and you grew into it. But there's a a spiritual parallel. That you are born spiritually. You start out as an infant and you gradually grow into Christ. Right? We do that as a family. We do that as a church. Verse 8, it says this. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, there's a bit of a play in words here. It says the wind blows where it wants to blow. Well, the word wind is pneuma, right? It's the the same word as when it says spirit. So the word wind, breath, and spirit are all the same word. They're interchangeable. Uh, You can translate them interchangeably. And so, again, Jesus uses kind of a physical metaphor, a worldly metaphor. The wind blows where it wants to blow. In other words, the wind does kind of what it wants to do. Just like the spirit, it's not something you control. It's something that, that happens to you. It's something that takes place in you. You can hear the wind or you can kind of see the wind's effects on things, but you can't really see wind. The only time you can see wind is when it's blowing things. You actually see the things that are moving. He said, Jesus is now, again, he said, don't marvel. Don't, don't, don't get lost in this. But then he... Really, as he takes it, there's, there's more to it. He says that this is a work of the Spirit, that it, if you will, blows through, that the Spirit takes, takes, take, ignites your heart for God or, or starts your heart beating for God, if you will. He says this is a work of God. This isn't a work of yours. Now, again, let's back out to the setting. There's Jesus, and then there's a religious leader. And this religious leader probably lives a very good life, right? He probably does very good moral religious things. He probably goes to temple every week. He probably offers sacrifice. He probably gives financially. He probably serves somewhere. I mean, he is, he is literally a religious leader. And so he does all the things that you say might look like a good life. And what Jesus is saying is, I don't want you to look at how you live. I want you to look at where your heart is. 
I don't, just because you're a human being does not make you a follower of Jesus. And just because you do good things and are religious does not make you someone who is in the family of Jesus. He says what happens there is the spirit does something in your heart. You're born again spiritually. You're born physically. Now you're born spiritually. Like your, your, your heart is awakened, regenerated, made alive by the Holy Spirit. So, just as a note, there's a difference between mystery and confusion. Confusion means you don't understand. Well, a mystery is beyond our full comprehension, yet we understand it in part. And what Jesus is saying, I don't want you to be confused, right? I don't want you to feel like you can't understand this. But when we talk about God, there's a bit of mystery, right? Mystery is beyond our full comprehension, yet we understand it in part. God has a level of mystery to him because he's larger than our comprehension, Hope comes from God being bigger than us while still coming down to our level, right? That Jesus would condescend from heaven to become flesh because he loves us, because that is the way back to God. That, that Jesus would do that should cause hope. And the idea that we should not be confused, but there's still some mystery in this, that we will never be able to fully grasp or comprehend God. Because if we could, we would be like God. And if God, if we could fully understand or contain or comprehend or grasp God, that God wouldn't be big enough to fix my problems. And so what Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to understand this. I'm giving you some metaphors that you need to kind of get a handle on things. It's not just about how your life looks. It's something that's done internally by God's spirit. I want you to see this. I want you to know that a spiritual life has to start too, not just a physical life. I want you to see this. I want you to see that the spirit is often like the wind. You can, you can see it happening around you, but you can't actually see it. And he says, what Jesus is doing is he's giving us an understanding, but not, we can't fully grasp God. But God should always have a, a bit of mystery. Like, how did God become flesh? Like, I'm not really sure. I understand how that, how that works. When Jesus went to the cross, he is fully human and fully divine. It's not 50-50. It's 100% and 100%. That's not really good math, right? How does the author of life, Jesus, die on a cross? Like, how's the guy who created life, how does he die? Like, there should be a bit of mystery in God. We should never attain this place where we feel like we understand it all. And I know that that can be a stumbling block for people because we live in an academic society. Even lesser educated folks, we live in this world of information and academics. And so we want to understand it. We want to get a hold of it before we do anything with it. And what Jesus is saying is, it, you just can't fully understand God. There must be some mystery left to God. There must be, because if, again, if he was small enough to we, we could understand him, he'd not be large enough to fix the junk inside our lives. And so Jesus is giving these metaphors, these, these understandings, these physical images to help. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? You've got to see yourself in Nicodemus in his shoes. Right? He's taking this all in for the very first time. We, most of us here have some paradigm. We've heard this, read this, understood this at some level before. 
this is the first time it was ever said. And Nicodemus is just trying to take it in. Imagine you're Nicodemus and you're wrestling with the idea, hey, I'm a religious leader. And maybe that's not enough. Maybe that's something entirely different. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're like, hey, I'm a good person. And you're listening to this and you're saying, okay, maybe that's not what Jesus is calling us to be. Well, I go to church all the time. Well, that's not what Jesus said. He didn't say, well, you got to go to church every week. He said, there's something that has to take place in you that is done by the Spirit of God that is notable, that is palatable. You can't see it. You can't control it, but it does take place. And he's saying, you see evidence of it in your life. Just like you see evidence of wind when wind blows through, even if you didn't see it, you know it took place. You can, you can hear it, but you can't actually see the air itself. Jesus is saying something supernatural, something spiritual, something Holy Spirit must happen in your heart and in your life. And he's saying this to a religious leader. So that ought to level the playing field for all of us, especially those of us that have questions. That it doesn't matter what kind of life you come to Jesus with. It doesn't matter if you're a, you know, a, a really sinful person over here or a religious leader over here. It comes at the same level. And really, all of us have questions about God. If you're sitting here and the thing between you and God is, I have questions, I have things I don't understand, well, join the group. We all have things we don't understand. And it's not because God hasn't come down to our level to speak to us. It's because God is, is just, it has us a level of mystery, a level that we cannot comprehend all of who God is. But what he does is he brings it down to our level and he says it in a way that we can at least grab hold of. Verse 10, Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and yet do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, this is more culturally about being him being a Jewish religious leader, but the idea is I'm giving you human metaphors, right? I'm giving you things that you can understand. You understand what it looks like to either be born or to have a child or you understand birth. So I'm giving you this image. If you can't understand that, how will you ever understand what God is doing? And then he says, you listen, you understand. You can look around. You can see when the wind, what the wind does. Like I'm giving you something you can understand. And if you can't get this, how do you expect to understand God? And he's not putting him down. He's saying, listen, there, there's a level of mystery to God, but I'm also giving you what you need. I'm speaking to you on your level. And again, this has a lot of Jewish culture kind of embedded in the text. But for us as followers of Jesus, here's the places where we struggle. Most people, most Christians in the Western American church don't have a real good grasp of the gospel. They may know that it has to do with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But really, the, most people that go to church, and, and this, let me just say this from a funeral perspective, from a memorial service perspective. As a pastor, I do a lot of those memorials and funerals and gravesides. And Christians, I'm not even talking about non-Christians. I'm talking about church-going Christians. When they get up to speak about the one they love, and they are part of the eulogy or they are a family member and they speak, and I, I mean people of faith. And they will say, I know, I know that Grandpa, I know he's with God because Grandpa was such a good person. And as a pastor, it's the most heartbreaking sentence to hear ever. Because if that were the case, then Jesus would have looked at Nicodemus and said, man, you're a good person. Don't worry about it. 
That's never been the gospel. The gospel is that God created you and I, that God gave rise to, gave birth to, gave breath to humanity, that God created humanity and God created us with a design, that we were designed to be worshipers of God, that we were made in the image of God to be worshipers of God. And worship for us means obedience. For us, worship of God is to be selfless and all about God. And that will turn out in obedience and worship. Just we will be followers of God. Sin is choosing to follow self rather than God. It's becoming our own God, right? Sin is when we say, okay, God, I know you created me. I know you're omniscient. I know you're smarter than I am. But right now, you're wrong. I'm right. I'm going to do this. And I know how stupid that sounds, but we all do it, right? We all do it. And so not only have we inherited sin from generations, millennia of people, but then we contribute to it. And we do, and then as followers of Jesus, we still do it. So it's not like we're not a part of the problem, right? So creation, there's a way we were made, designed to be. Fall, there is the brokenness that we have contributed, contributed to and been a part of and received from generations before us. And then there is redemption. There is Jesus entering into human history to live the life that we were called to live, to die the death that we deserve, to pay the penalty for our sins, to be our substitute, to take our place, right? We just had the 500th year anniversary of when Martin, uh, uh, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg church door, right? And one of Martin Luther's favorite passages was in Corinthians, and he called it the great exchange. And he says, we're on the cross. I exchanged my shame and my guilt and I, and I exchanged it with Christ for his righteousness and his holiness. That Jesus goes and he takes our place and he takes our penalty. But not only does he take our penalty, but he gives us his righteousness, his holiness, his own very spirit that awakens our heart. And then the last part of the gospel, really in, in simple terms, is restoration. That's becoming more and more like we were designed to be. And so in our culture today, we lose sight of this and we go, well, like I go to church or I'm a member of a church or I serve or I give money, all good things. Not going to get you in heaven. Not really going to get you in a relationship with God either. You can be a religious leader like Nicodemus and still be missing the point that this is something life transforming that takes place that the spirit does in your heart. That, that transforms you. One of the things when I set out to write a book, one of the things they asked me is like, why you? Why, why would you write this book? Why, why this topic? Why this and why you? Those are questions you have to answer to a publisher. And the reason I gave is not because I've been where I've been, because there's lots of people that have been where I've been and that are now Christians. I said, because I've been where I've been, but I've seen more life transformation than anyone I know. Like that I've seen everything so transformed that it's like when I tell you about this, it's like telling you about a movie I saw or a book I read. It's like I'm not even talking about me. And I want other people to know that change, that transformation in Christ. And all of that does not start with what we do. It starts in our heart. Jesus making us alive in our hearts. Verse 13 says this. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus says this, here's how you know you can trust me. No one else has ascended up into heaven except me, who created heaven, and descended down to you. 
Now, Jesus will say this, and he will repeat this after he has died and resurrected, right? And so if you, if you partner this with a resurrected Jesus, someone who died and came back to life, that's a lot of authority. That's a lot of credibility. Jesus says, first off, I came from heaven. I was a part of creation. I created humanity. And then I joined humanity. I came down from heaven, from my throne in heaven, I joined humanity. And I lived this life you live in, and I died your death. And I was laid in a tomb for three days, and I am alive now. He says, I am authoritative when it comes to what matters in this world. And there is more historical proof for the resurrection than we could even understand. And Jesus says, it is with that I am the one who can tell you. Again, if you're a note taker, Christmas celebrates the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus becoming flesh. Jesus entered into human flesh to live our life and give us hope and restore us to God. Jesus became flesh, entered our life, became like us, as one ancient writer says, so that we could become like him, that we could be restored to God, that we could be, that the brokenness in us could begin to be healed. That's where we should place our hope, and that's why we should celebrate Christmas, that we would understand that Jesus entered into our world, and he did it for us. He condescended literally from heaven to put on flesh and endure what we endure. He got tired. He got heartbroken. He was abandoned by friends. He went to parties, had friends, he, all these kind of things, but he also was tortured and murdered. Like he endured what we endure. He went hungry. He went sleepless. He had those seasons of life that were hard. He lost loved ones. He went through this that we might know we have hope in him. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. Jesus is walking through the gospel. If you want to hear more about this story of Moses and the serpent, you can read Numbers 21. If you're in the medical field, you have assembled the caduceus, right? That came from Numbers 21. You should go look that up just as an aside. But here's what Jesus says. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So Jesus is just entering into his three-year vocational season of ministry where he goes in and is speaking all over the, all over the, all over the place. And he is going into temples, into town squares, and he is healing people, and he's performing miracles, and he's teaching. This is on the front end of that. And from the very beginning, he says, listen, the whole point here is that I must die for you that I must be lifted up on a cross and give my life and trade for yours. Next slide. Jesus endured a human life and a physical death. Jesus was tortured and crucified and took our punishment on himself. Hope in Christ comes from forgiveness and a new life now as well as eternal life with God forever. Way too many times the church just talks about forgiveness and misses the idea of new life. Like, just imagine that I have all these things that I've done wrong, and God says, well, I'm not going to hold them against you, but that's it. Like, I still have them. I'm still kind of defined by them. And Jesus says, I take all those away, and I give you a new life, right? I awaken your heart. I give you a new heart, a new spirit. I cleanse you of those things and make you new. Our hope is in full transformation in Jesus, that as we live this life out, we will constantly be made, being made more and more like Jesus until one day we stand in his presence. That we are made right before him. Verse 15, it says that whoever believes in him, 
Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Right? This, there's a call for people to believe in Jesus, not do things. Not go and do this, not go and be this, but to believe. Now he's talking about belief, not just a mental assent, but belief that is life transforming. I, I put it down this way. Faith is our response. Jesus calls us to, us to believe in him so deeply that our lives are transformed. Don't confuse this with behavior modification or being good people. This is about a life driven by belief in Jesus, our God eternal. This is believing in Jesus so deeply that everything else falls away. Believing in Jesus so much, so deeply, so truly, that all the other things that we believe about life fall second to him. And that begins to transform our life by the Spirit at work in us. And we'll close with this verse. You know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He said, God loved you so much that he gave his only son. That whoever would believe in Jesus, believe so deeply that their life is oriented around Jesus, that whoever would do that, God says, you'll live forever with me. But forever starts today. Right? I, I remember hearing the gospel as a non-believer, and it was all about this thing that happened after we died. And I said, you know what? My life's a wreck right now. Like, I need hope right now. Well, forever starts today. Forever doesn't start in a while. Forever is now. It just goes on forever. He says that you just believe in Jesus. If you would place your faith and your trust in Jesus, he will begin to reshape your life. He will begin to cause change in you. And I would suggest this. If you're sitting here and you're asking questions about Jesus, the Spirit's begun to stir in your heart already. And the next step's yours. The next step is that you would step forward in faith to follow Jesus. We began with this passage in 1 Peter. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again, right? If you're here and you have those questions today, something is stirring inside you. He has caused you. He has started a work in you to be born again, made spiritually alive, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That living hope comes from the fact that Jesus is alive today. That gives him not only authority and validity, but that he rose from the dead to give us new life. Back one, please. To an, uh, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This last part is saying that God keeps us. God keeps you. God keeps that inheritance of full transformation in Christ. God guards that, not you. That's not on you. That's on him. All he's ever done is call you to believe. The last, last slide. The resurrection is the guarantee of our hope. Not only comes from Christ who lived and Christ who died, but from Christ who raised from the dead to live forevermore. The resurrection of Jesus is proof that hope exists for anyone who comes in faith. The fact that Jesus is alive is all the proof we need, is all the hope we need to live in this world. And so I'm going to say this, wherever you are, if, if this is you, if you're like Nicodemus, if that's you, if you're that person asking those questions, Jesus, I see something different in you, who are you? Jesus would say, I'm the one who can change your life.
I'm the one who makes you spiritually alive. I am the one who gave my life in place of yours. I'm the one who suffered and died so that you wouldn't have to. I'm the one who rose from the dead so that you could have a new life. And all you need to do is believe and believe so deeply that your life becomes oriented around Jesus. I'm going to pray, and if that's you, I'm just going to pray for you today. I know we have folks that watch online that are not followers of Jesus. I know we have people that come to this church that would not identify themselves as Christians. And so I just want to start this Advent season. May this Christmas season be a step for all of us towards Jesus, but maybe a first step for many. So let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, you're alive. We proclaim that. We believe that. And I know we have people here that have questions. I know we have people here that have doubts. I know we have people that are watching online, Lord, that, that, that don't know you or don't follow you yet. And sometimes the thing they're told to do is to be different. And you would say this, just believe. Just believe in me. So Jesus, I pray for those folks that the mystery or confusion or doubt that that would set aside and they would begin to believe in you so deeply that their life would be different. God, I want everyone to see the kind of life transformation I've seen. I need as much more as I've received already, but, but I know, I know you. And I want my brothers and sisters here, I want them all to know you. I want them to be transformed by you daily, just as I need to be transformed by you daily and all you do is call us to believe because belief drives what we do and so Jesus we believe in you I pray for those who have doubts I pray for those who have questions I pray for those who have struggles and I pray that you would make yourself known to them that they might begin to believe that they might begin to follow that they would follow you Jesus Amen